This is Michael Horn, co-producer of Calypso Dream. Are you here? Yeah, we like it when you're here. Actually, we love it when you're here. Thanks for being here and tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour. On today's episode, we present our interview with Michael Horn, who produced the documentary film Calypso Dreams. Now, this interview was originally broadcast on radio in 2009. Calypso Dreams features exclusive interviews, footage, and musical performances from some of the greatest Clipsonians of yesterday and today. Michael Horn discovered Trinidad after learning to play the steel pan, which led him to visit Trinidad. There, he eventually discovered the Calypso tents and became infatuated with this distinctly Afro-Caribbean genre of music, which many are calling a dying art. Hey, we've got more great interviews like this one. Yes, we do. You can subscribe to Paul Leslie's YouTube channel. You know, it's free. And it's fun. And you can ring that bell. Ding, ding. We thank you. And now it's time for Michael Horn to talk about Calypso Dreams. Let's listen together. It is our pleasure to welcome Mr. Michael Horn, the co-producer of the film Calypso Dreams. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. First of all, I'd like to find out how you discovered Calypso music. I uh, started playing the steel drums in the uh, mid-80s out here in California with a percussionist drummer and added a, a pan to my little entourage there. And before you know it, I went down to Trinidad to you know to see the big steel bands in competition in the mid-80s and just sort of fell in love with the place at that point. Been back and forth a few a few times. I, at the time, I owned a, had a couple of record shops up here, out here in California and had people, a lot of folks looking for steel band music, and there was very little available domestically on vinyl in those days. <laughs> so I actually produced a number of big band competition performances in the late 80s, which kept me kind of going back and forth to Trinidad doing business down there. And, and while I was there, really for Pan, most first and foremost, started hanging out at the Calypso tent and just, you know, found an amazing thing in, in Calypso music in that sort of a, a chance for every man to have a, a voice. And it, I thought it was, it was an amazing thing from a sort of cultural perspective. You know, if somebody puts up a new stoplight at the, at the, where there's always a stop sign, anybody in town can get up and have a voice. And I think the sort of the equivalent in, in the States anyway is you write a letter to the editor if it's in the local paper if you got a comment on something. But, you know, if you're not a singer or you're not a musician, you don't write a song about it. But in Trinidad, everybody can comment on anything. You get up there, you get a chance to sing, you do three verses and a couple of choruses. And I just thought it was such an amazing expression. That kind of hooked me. Plus, the scene is just so great in those, in those little clips of tents, especially back then, in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. Can you remember any Calypsonians in particular that really caught your attention in the beginning? I got to say, I, you know, Kitsch was always my man. I mean, from the really, literally the very first year, I went down with a good buddy of mine who was really into Calypso and Danny Bitker. And, and actually, at the time, I was studying steel drums with Andy Norell and Andy was arranging for one of the big bands and, and both Andy and Danny, you know, said, you got to go to Kitch's tent and check that whole scene in there in the review. So sure enough, that was, that was the first year Kitch got under my skin. And, and every year I would go back and became friends with him eventually. And 
many years later performing on the West Coast and actually, you know, singing some of the Calypso tunes out here. And Kitsch always got excited to kick it. There was a guy out in California doing these kit covers and clubs up and down the West Coast. <laughs> but he was always he was always kind of my favorite. You mentioned a minute ago that one of the things you like about Calypso is the fact that everybody has a voice. What else is it about Calypso that you like? I think for certain the extempo pieces is magical. I mean, you really got to be on your game and sharp. And when extempo is working, it's just the greatest to me. And I think that is one of my favorite aspects of, of that cultural arts tradition is the, is the extemporaneous battles and uh, all the charge behind it all, you know. And the music, I, I love the, the figures. You know, there's some relatively simple motifs that uh, that uh, certainly in extempo, you know, Sandy Monate and a few different motifs that uh, are are just sort of cycled with different lyrics. But I, I love all those those figure motifs. I've got thousand records probably, and you know, so many of the old style was was a similar feel and, and motif. But uh, it's really about the lyrics and the and the feeling. On the last episode of the show, we welcomed Dr. Jeffrey Dunn, who made this film. Calypso Dreams with you. How did you meet him? Jeffrey's an old pal of mine for probably geez, uh, probably 30 years here in Santa Cruz. Uh, he was a filmmaker and, like I said, pals for many years. And I ran into him one day outside of a movie theater. And I had just come back from Trinidad. We had talked about doing something together. And I said, hey, you know, I got to get you down there one year and run with me on the streets of Port of Spain. And, and, and you got to see this Calypso scene. Maybe there's a Maybe there's a film there or a documentary. And then we sort of gave it a little a little bit of juice talked to Andy Norell and some, some folks out west here. Uh, and then it kind of died out. And, and then several years later, I ran into Jeffrey again, or right after Kitsch died, just weeks after, days after Kitsch died. And they said, now's the time. At the time, I was uh, producing many Cuban shows uh, around the heels of Buena Vista Social Club. And I said, you know, there's a powerful, a film as powerful as Buena Vista Social Club in Port of Spain. And we just lost, you know, one of the patriarchs of the, of the whole scene. So if ever there was a time, now's the time. And Jeffrey said, well, you know, I've got a little time. Let's go. And, and Carnival was coming right up. And within weeks, we just sort of jumped on a plane and started the first shoot. What do you hope to accomplish from this film? We didn't really know what we were getting into, I think, when we started. I mean, it was it was really a labor of love. I'm just in love with the scene down there. And the, at the time, I like I said, Buena Vista Social Club was very big when we started shooting. And I, I thought we, we could get these guys some exposure and some work and, and maybe more work in the States and, and abroad. You know, so many of the great Calypsonians were kind of just cycling the same half a dozen little clubs in, in Port of Spain and, and living on very little money. And, and that's how it goes sometimes. But I felt like watching the Buena Vista example, the, you know, the soundtrack came out and, and everybody was got exposure and the film got, got accolades. And then the tour began and many of those artists uh, were able to provide real, you know, a real living for themselves in their, in their latter years. And I felt like that was certainly possible for for guys like Zandali and Blakey and, you know, and, and uh, so many that, that, I, that I saw year after year, having produced some records down there, some steel band records, and now we're already doing business down in Trinidad, I thought, well, it's easy enough for me. I've, I've got the record connections, and, I've got, and I'm a concert promoter out in the West Coast, and I do a lot of shows. And so if we can make this film and capture these guys, maybe we can get them some work. Once we got into it, we ended up going back and forth in many trips over several years, and many of the bars began passing, you know, we started losing some of our key stars of the, of the, of the film, that touring became, you know, less and less of a, a possibility with less and less people on the road. So then it just become a, you know, a glimpse and, and sort of unfortunately, some of the last interviews caught on tape are happening in these men and women's lives are on in this film. So 
and it's, it's, it's really an honor to have been part of the project. And like I said, we sort of stumbled into it for one reason, but ended up, I think, uh, with something much grander than we expected. Do you have a favorite part of the film? The scene, I think, with Duke and Soupy, Duke having just passed last couple weeks ago, really is one of my favorite looking scenes. Lord Superior and Duke, we got them out under, under, under a grove of bamboo trees, and they sat on a little bench under these bamboo trees, and I just asked them to, to play some classics just with an acoustic guitar. In the background, it's a large bamboo, and there's, it's near the freeway, and there's some wind going on. The wind's blowing, it's a crackle and kind of this interesting ambiance. I love the feel of that scene because uh, Sufi's playing beautiful guitar, Duke singing classics like, you know, his Thunder and some of his big dance tunes, but in a real old Kaiso style with the crackling bamboo on top. And that's, it, it looks beautiful. And then they're laughing and it's, it's, it's a great moment. Of course, Sparrow and Soupy together unplugged on it with an acoustic guitar is magic. You don't see Sparrow like that. What we thought was going to be a half a dozen tunes ended up being about an hour and a half of Slinger singing classics, but also deep catalog. You know, I asked him, uh, what's the song, you know, you, that never got it to do? Sing us a song that never really, the, the great one that never really got it to do. And he sang songs like Federation and, and tunes that were pretty pretty deep in his catalog. And then, of course, he and Soupy sang some of Soupy's tunes and they did choruses together at the next tempo. It's chock full of gems. It's been a number of months, seeing probably eight months, since I've actually personally, having seen the film about a thousand times, we just released the Caribbean Cut, did a screening just a couple of weeks ago, and, and it's just, it just reminded me that there are so many magic moments, and especially with the passing of so many of the bards, it's all the, all the better a film, I think. What is your impression of the country itself, of Trinidad? Port of Spain in particular, which is where I spend most of my time when I'm there. I've been there 21, year, 21 years, so back and forth, and it's kind of a rough and tumble place. Port of Spain in particular, around carnival time, of course, is, is really pretty wild. But if you go down there off year, it's, it's very sweet, and I, mean, I really love the country. And, and then getting out of, out of Port of Spain is a beautiful thing, too, running around a little bit in the country and getting over to Tobago. It's, it's my second home. A second ago, you mentioned the word queso. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, would like to know, is there a difference between calypso and queso? As I understand it, queso is just, is just an origin, the, the origin of the word calypso. And it's a local version of the word calypso and perhaps the source for the, the predecessor to the word. But a couple of good, strong verses on an extempo, and you'll hear the crowd yell, Kaiso, Kaiso, which always is just an affirmation of Calypso in its sort of truest form. You know, when you're really in the Calypso zone, you know when the crowd starts yelling, Kaiso, Kaiso. Very interesting. Just so that a lot of the listeners out there are clear, a lot of people may be under the misconception that Harry Belafonte is a Calypsonian, and mm-hmm. he is not. And he's actually one of the subjects of the film, as in he was interviewed I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your impression of Mr. Belafonte and also about that misconception. I love Mr. Belafonte. I think he's, a, he's an amazing guy. And being down in, in Trinidad all those years and, and in the Calypso scene, he's not seen as, as, a, as a Calypsonian. He happened to be coming out west here. And we contacted him about commenting on the film. First thing he says, well, he says you, know, you know, they hate me down there. I said, or, you know, they don't like me down there. And I said, really? What do you mean? So we said about an hour and a half and he was so gracious and, and he really set the record straight, I think. You know, he had the, the number one sell, selling record, I think, of all time at that time with, with that Calypso record, 1958, I believe. And, you know, had a tours and the record was selling like crazy. But the producers of the album and at the label called the LP Calypso and without talking to him about it. 
he talked about how he and Paul Robeson and Jacques White used to get together and talk about folk music of the African diaspora, and and they sang their their own folk music that they grew up with and that they loved, and so they would pick songs like that. And he put together this record that had some some clips. So he's from Jamaica, and he put some of the songs he had grown up with. And when the record label came out and with this album called Calypso and marketed it in such a way, he was really incensed by that so much so that he actually. For the next two years after that the album came out, on his international tours, he refused to sing one song from that record as a protest to the way he was being sort of marketed and, and pigeonholed there. And what he says in the movie is that what he was attempting to do was to bring Caribbean culture to the world. And if in doing so, he's offended anybody, then he, he says, I beg your forgiveness, you know. Well, I got to tell you, when that scene comes on in the movie in Trinidad, and we've screened it several times there, you know, there's, a, there's, there's always a hush when he comes on the screen, like, oh, no, what's he doing in the movie, right? But he's so eloquent, and he so gives us such a clear message of what really happened there. But I remember sitting next to Brigo at one of the screenings, who, who kind of grumbled when he came on screen, and then he, and he did that little piece, and Brigo stood up and clapped and said, that's a great man. And I think that, that I think the film has, has really healed that wound, or that not a wound, that misconception in Trinidad, because he, he never set himself out to be a Calypsonian. He never called himself a Calypso, and he didn't name the record Calypso. It was a marketing thing. Best to come from him. You'll see it in the film, but it's a great moment, I think. Jeffrey Dunn touched on this when we talked to him. One of the questions that this film asks is, what is going to happen to Calypso? I have to ask, what is your opinion on that? It's a living, breathing, changing thing. You know, I hate to, to say that the heyday is over, uh, but I think it probably is. I mean, there is a little bit of a renaissance happening, and I like to believe that this film might have, could have a hand in stoking that the fires of that renaissance by just introducing, you know, kind of Calypso at its best to new audiences and maybe firing some new new young entrees into the scene. But I think that, you know, the glory days of Kaiso, you know, may have come and gone. I have two final questions for you, one lighthearted and one a little bit more serious. What is your all-time favorite meal? <laughs> favorite meal? Well, I tell you, I, I would have to say it's, it's a bust-up shut and a cold Malby. What was that? It's a bust-up shut and a cold Malby. <laughs> what is that? A bust-up shut is, uh, is like a roti, curried roti, and only it's, it's sort of, uh, if you imagine a, a roti on a plate, opened up in the middle, like the roti's been destroyed. Well, it's like a, it's like a shirt. It's like a shirt, only it's a busted-up shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bust-up shut. And then a mabi is a Trinidadian's favorite drink. It's a cold, uh, sweet drink made from, a, from bark. But a hot curried bust-up shut and an ice-cold mabi can't be beat. Very interesting. So my final question for you, this broadcast is going out all over the world. So what would you like to say to all those people that are listening in? I would invite everybody to, of course, to see the film, to visit the, our site at ClipsoDreams.com and really, and really let, this, uh, let this great cultural art tradition you know, sink in and, and sit with you and just uh, take it in. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a window into a great scene, I think, that happened from in, in a small island in the, in the Southern Caribbean from the 40s until, you know, until, until today, really. There's, there, there are still uh, great Calypso tents and great little scenes happening down there. And, and if, uh, if you ever make it to Carnival, then, you know, get, get off the street and get out of the focus scene for one or two of those nights and, and duck into the review or to a uh, spectacular tent or, or down into one of the pubs and, and, and see the, some old time Kaiso if you can, because it's, it's a really special thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Horn, the co-producer of the documentary film Calypso Dreams. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. 
We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song courtesy of John Premerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good.